1: In this episode of Idea City on the air, Ian Brown speaks about his experience on turning 60. Now let's join Moses as he introduces Ian to the stage.
0: Life expectancy at the end of the Second World War was just 60 in Canada. Since then, we've been gaining life expectancy at the rate of about three months a year. Average life expectancy in Canada today has peaked into the 80s, close to 85 for women, a little less for men. The Lancet, <clears throat> a very important medical journal, perhaps the premier medical journal in the world, last year said that half of the babies born today will live to be 100. And we know that modern business is now moving into the longevity area, Google has set up a company called Calico, California Life Company. There are other such companies in formation and there is serious talk, scientifically based talk, about extended life to the 120 years that is mentioned in the Bible. What did they know even then? All the way through to 150 and beyond. So, in that kind of world, what is 60? It's only halfway. You're a spring chicken. And yet our next speaker, Ian Brown, has just released a book called 60, The Beginning of the End or The End of the Beginning, A Diary of My 61st Year. Ian Brown.
2: essentially for the first 15 years of our lives, we're dependent upon our parents or upon other people to keep us alive. And suddenly around between 11 and 16, something changes. Our bodies become more independent. We break away from the people we're dependent on. We decide to make decisions for ourselves. Um, and our bodies become our, really our closest and most reliable advisors for the next 45 years. Years, So, you know, they tell us when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat. Sometimes they tell who to sleep with, who not to sleep with, who we shouldn't have slept with but did sleep with, uh, you know, who to marry, who to have kids with. Our, our bodies, including our brains, of course, uh, take care uh, of, of a lot of stuff. And then, suddenly, uh, at, at the age of around 60, as you approach 60, this old pal begins to fail you, and uh, dependency looms again. Not, not just dependency, but, but even depends loom <laughs> again. And that, is, that, is, that does not feel like progress, I don't think, um, uh, to, to anybody. And the first time I noticed that my body was changing, um, I work at the Globe and Mail as a, as a, a roving feature writer. And the Globe and Mail is a daily newspaper here in Toronto that some of you may once have read. And uh, we had these story meetings about once a month, and there, you know, you get all the writers get together and they pitch their stories. And uh, uh, I went to one when I was about fifty-nine, um, and I had been reading. I'm sort of interested in maritime history, and I'd been reading these books about uh, voyages, uh, circumnavigations of the tip of South America, about um, uh, uh, Cape Horn, and. Um, I was sitting in the meeting waiting my turn and a younger writer stood up and said, pitched his idea and he said, you know, I want to write a book, uh, write a story about gay porn, about uh, homosexual pornography. And so I automatically jumped up and I said, oh, I love gay porn. It's fantastic. I, I can't get enough gay porn. And he, he kind of looked at me and he said, um, you know, Ian, you don't really seem like the type." And, and I said, oh, come on, what's not the love, you know? The, the, uh, the roiling semen, uh, you know, the, you know, rolling around on the poop jack, I mean, all this stuff, you know, it's fantastic. And um, this went on for about five minutes, and finally my editor said, are you saying cape horn, or are you saying gay porn? And I said, of course I'm saying cape horn. We, we cleared that up, and that was when I realized that my, my hearing was going. And, and, and rapidly, after that, I began to realize that it wasn't the only thing I noticed, for instance, that there, this space was appearing on the top of my head, where my hair it, began, it sort of resembled Stonehenge, uh, where they did the human sacrifices in the middle, where, that, that sort of bald spot. And because I was going bald, I started to use product, uh, you know uh, ointment, or whatever you call that goop, uh, in, in my hair. And I would get up in the morning and I would put it on my hands, and one morning I put it on my hands and proceed to apply. It to my face as if it were sunblock because, of course, now that I am 60, I have to wear SPF 5000 sunblock. Uh, another time at work, I went into the bathroom, I went into the booth to do my business, I closed the door, I secured the lock, and I began to unbutton my shirt. I'm still not sure what I was hoping to do. Uh, uh, in there... I began to read about the decay of the body because I am a hypochondriac, and and I began to realize that it's not just when you're 60 that this happens, that in fact, your brain reaches its maximum size and capacity at 28. It's downhill all the way from there. Slowly, slowly, and you know, if you concentrate, maybe you can bring a bit of your memory back, or you can keep it, but it's, it's really just maintenance. Nothing is really improving. By the time you're 40, your bones are literally turning to ash, from mineral into, into ash. Um, at, at 30, your skin starts to go, and the weird thing happens, your nose starts to get bigger. And the, <laughs> And I read a lot about the nose. The reason your nose starts to get bigger is that the elastin in your skin begins to decay. I didn't realize I had elastin in my skin. I thought I only had it in my underwear. (laughs) But the elastin in your skin starts to go, and so your nose begins to droop. But it's not just that, because not only does your nose begin to droop, but your head, as you get older, beyond fifty, actually begins to shrink. So as your nose, droops and your head shrinks, your nose looks bigger. Your penis, not so much. And the terrible thing about this is there is no way to predict any of this. There is no way to predict how quickly it occurs, if it's going to occur, if it's not going to occur, if you're one of the lucky people who manages to avoid all this stuff. You can do all that, you can read Younger next year, you can read sexy at, sexy at 60, you can do crosswords till the cows come home, but there is no guarantee that you are going to be one of the people who, who, who is helped by that. In other words, what you realize as you get older, the real, re, reason it's so upsetting is that you realize that we have no control over our bodies. None, I mean the scientists, they keep pretending, they keep saying, oh yeah, gene therapy, it's coming. It's been coming for 50 years, you know, and it's still coming. It's a kind of tantric thing, I guess. <laughs> and this is why I think that we deny, I mean, why it is possible for me, for instance, to look at, at, this, at this young man here who, who, is, who is also balding, and he's at least 20 years younger than I am, but I look at him and I see his balding, and I think, that poor guy, look how close to death he is. <laughs> I am in... I am in complete denial. And the reason I'm in denial is that, and this is a simple fact, that from the moment I was born, I have been aging. And in every single, and I have uh, Simone de Beauvoir to thank for this, you know, the mother of modern feminism, um, uh, who also, her second book was a book called Old Age. And um, it's about, I'm gonna save you a lot of time here, old age. (laughs) But Simone de Beauvoir coined this phrase in relation to aging about the other. Because inside us, this person we think is getting stronger and more vital, always, 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 especially more than this guy. But inside us is this aging being, always aging. So we live a double life. And I'm sure no one in this room, a friend of Moses, has lived a double life. But (laughs) if you have, you know it never turns out well. Because suddenly your double life exposes itself to you And that's what happens That's why Goethe said that aging takes us all Always by surprise Because suddenly we cannot deny The existence of the other inside us This aging other and, and that is um, that, that, that's upsetting, so, so I basically started reading about, about aging, and I discovered and not to oversimplify the history of literature and thinking too much, but there are basically two approaches uh, to, to aging one is the woe is me school, and this is, um, and this is in literature and, and in thinking and in philosophy, and that's best characterized by Philip Larkin, the great British poet of the 40s and 50s and 60s Larkin wrote a, a brilliant poem he wrote many poems about aging, it was, it was his his secret favorite subject. But Larkin, uh, his fa- uh, most famous one is called Obad, um, in which he describes his habit of waking up in the middle of the night, um, worrying about, and I'm just going to read you a bit. it's so beautiful, what's really always there, unresting death a whole day, nearer now, making all thought impossible, but how and where and when I shall myself die. Death <laughs> Larkin thought was the anesthetic from which none come round. And he tried. He realized this was a futile thinking process because you can't control when and where and how you're going to die. But he couldn't stop because the thought of death is a very special question. Most things won't happen, Larkin wrote, this one will. The second possibility, if you're not a depressive, is complete denial. Uh, Harold Pinter famously said, death. I mean, he said it death, and he had more of his tongue out of his mouth than he had in his mouth when he, when he used to say it and, and this is essentially the i don 't care if i 'm getting older i 'm carrying on. This is the younger next year, the sex uh, you know uh, sexy at sixty basically it 's not the depressive approach it 's the delusional approach <laughs> and I found that I was pinging back and forth, pinging back and forth from one day to the next, and I had no control over whether I felt. Younger than you, or a lot older than you. And, that, and this kind of um, upset me, it was exhausting. Coming up after the break. You know, Oprah, she's got more money than God, she's hugely powerful, she's incredibly accomplished, but she's just as close to the end as I am.
1: Welcome back to Idea City On The Air. You're listening to Ian Brown speak about his experience on turning 60. So I decided
2: what I would do would be to keep a diary of what happened to me every day to see if I could certainly not stop time. But maybe I could shape it a little. Maybe I could slow slow it down. Um, and this turned out to be what I think is the most, and what I have to recommend to you, the most reliable hedge um, against aging. It does not stop aging. It does not prevent aging. It does not prevent death. But it certainly makes aging more conscious and more available to you. Um, so uh, what I'm suggesting to you is that you all keep a uh, diary as you get uh, older, And it turns out that keeping a diary is, is very hard. It's difficult. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, the, the alchemists who were alive in the Middle Ages, you know, they were the ones who tried to turn uh, lead into gold. Well, a is very much like that. And their motto uh, was um, patience, courage, and continuous regimen. Patience, because you have to keep writing even though you think you have nothing to write about. Courage, because sometimes you do have something to write about and you don't really want to cop to it. For instance, one of the things I used to do a lot when I was writing this book was go on the internet and find out who else is 60 which is a disgraceful mindless thing to do but I did it all the time because to find out that Oprah for instance you know or Christie Brinkley you know are also 60 I mean you know Oprah she's got more money than God she's hugely powerful she's incredibly accomplished but she's just as close to the end as I am <laughs> and that is a very reassuring thought mark my craven words So I I recommend that you do that. In any words, you know, you have to be patient till something like that comes along. And then you have to have courage and and write about it. And you have to, the most important thing is continuous regimen. You have to keep this diary 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour, however long it takes. You have to do it every single day. You have to regularize it. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. You just have to do it um, every single day. And... What this does is it introduces you to a part of yourself that you may have forgotten exists. For instance, as you get older, you do this actuarial analysis on everything. Is this the last car I'm going to (laughs) buy? Is this the last Le Creuset sauté pan I'm going to buy? Those goddamn things last forever. Are these the last pair of hiking boots that I'm going to buy? You know, probably that is the case. or reading, you know, is it going to be Cervantes and Joyce uh, and Tolstoy? That's a hell of a lot of reading. I'm not sure I have enough time left. So what you try to do, what we all try to do, is speed up and pack more details into our life. It's, and, and this is a problem. You know, It's like Woody Allen said when he wanted to read more books before he died, so he took a speed reading course and he read War and Peace. And somebody said, what's it about? And he said, it's about Russia. <laughs> The problem is that that we lose detail if we speed up. Whereas writing a diary counter instinctually makes you slow down and pay more attention to fewer details. And this has a very salutary effect, especially on people like us who live more and more of our lives in public, um, outside of ourselves, in an other directed direction. for instance, I am a journalist. So, as you know, I have virtually no soul whatsoever. <laughs> I'm always being told what's important and what matters. I read the news, I watch TV, I go on social media, somebody tweets something, I get emails. All of that, instead of knowing what is what I think is true, I basically, go by what is supposed to be true, or what other people tell me is true, or, or what other people want me to believe is true, or even what I want to believe is true so that I can feel better about myself, or sexier, or not as old, or something like that. Whereas what a diary does, because you're just writing about what happens in your life, is make you write about what you actually noticed, about the true details of your Existence. I used to begin every day by writing about the best thing that happened to me. Today, the best thing that happened—some woman called me up, said, "I want a copy of '60 Jerry Hall, Mick Jagger's ex—is a friend of mine." I want to give Jerry a copy. So I said, okay, she wasn't going to pay for it, so I had to give her a copy. But Jerry Hall, I figured that's okay. So I went to the cafe, and I sat down with her, and she started talking about how she knew Jerry and how she taught her kids, and everything she's had her eyes filled with tears. You know, not crying, but they just filled with tears. I think she was so relieved to be able to talk about some part of her life as hopeful that maybe, I don't know. But I made notes about that uh, today. You, you start to write about, for instance, how desire changes. You know, desire, sexual desire, once you reach 60, many of you will not know this, um, it, it gets slightly less insistent. But it gets a lot, it gets a lot broader. You know, so before, you know, I was always attracted to slim brunettes like my wife. Whereas now you could walk down the aisle wearing a propeller beanie and I'd ask you out. (laughs) My wife has the habit of reheating her tea throughout the day. I think it's the most disgusting habit. She's a writer, a screenwriter. I don't know why she does it, but she keeps doing it. I have notes about this. And because I have notes, I have thought about what she is trying to accomplish, and it has made me, me think of her. in a a deeper way. Essentially, and that's true. Not that I had a particularly shallow view of her before. In other words, writing a diary, instead of giving you the big picture, gives you the details of one person's experience. And what you realize after a while is that the things that mean the most to us These intimate, personal details that we think are intimate and personal only to us are the same details that everybody notices. In other words, these same details that you record in your diary are what make us all the same, and they are what make us all equal. And that recognition is the first gift, I think, of the aging process. And that seems like a great gift to me, and it is the gift of keeping a diary. So I urge you to keep one. Thank you.
0: What a splendid talk. That's great, Ian. Fantastic. I love, I, love what, I love what he says in the book uh, early on, first couple of pages, he says, uh, the thing about turning 60 is it's so damn melodramatic. <laughs>
1: Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash IdeaCity.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.